listeners, before we begin, I wanted to remind everyone that February 17th is Anthropology Day. Help us celebrate and share our discipline with the world around us. To participate and learn more, visit AmericanAntro.org slash AntroDay. The link will be available in our show notes. I'm actually doing great. I just don't appear like I am because it's morning. We usually don't because, well, here's a tip for any students listening out there. I learned to protect my writing time, like, or to, to use the part of the day for research and writing and then to protect that. So I usually set aside 8 to 11 every morning for research and writing. But here is the joy of being full professor with tenure is I don't actually need to write. So I can choose to stomp on all of writing time with some fun podcast interviewing if I want to. Yeah, I don't have that luxury and yet still my writing time gets stomped on. And I'm fine with it for, you know, the podcast, especially when we have international guests on and time zone differences are a big deal. But either way, I have found at least this semester, I have had like no time to write. Like, at all. (laughs) I'm a little stunned at how unproductive I have been in the research and writing realm in the past three weeks. Well, I will say I have not taken the time to write and I have not gotten up early and done the thing that I set out this this time for. I've I've done a lot of sleeping, but this interview (laughs) is fascinating. It's a timely interview, right? It's a very timely interview and I wouldn't not get up for a scheduled interview, but I get really, really excited for certain guests and we move heaven and earth to make sure they happen. And yes, we should have gotten her on two years ago, but we did not. He's still relevant because guess what? Sadly, sadly, it's still relevant is I think what we should say. You should tell everyone listening who she is and where she's from and what she does. Right. So today we have Dr. Jessica Dimka on the show and she is a research associate at Oslo Metropolitan University. And her research involves studying, get this everybody, how human behaviors, relationships, and social conditions affect the spread and outcomes of infectious disease epidemics. Could we Uh have a more relevant topic today or person? Her main body of work looked at these questions for a small fishing village in Newfoundland during the 1918 flu pandemic. And she has a new paper out in AJHV. Volume 34, Issue 1, with Lisa Satinspiel, titled, We Didn't Get Much Schooling Because We Were Fishing All the Time. Potential Impacts of Irregular School Attendance on the Spread of Academics. Jessica, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being on. How are you doing this evening? Good. Yeah, just been waiting to do this all day. I've been really excited about it. (laughs) Awesome. Well, to get us started, let's just start with you. Tell us about yourself and how you got into the wonderful world of studying disease epidemics and pursued the career that you're pursuing. 
Yeah. So um, as a kid, you know, I liked science and biology. So I kind of thought, well, I'll be a doctor when I grow up. I think that's pretty standard for people who might not be familiar with biological anthropology at five years old. So what type of doctor changed over the years? As a young teenager, I had a back brace and a spinal fusion for scoliosis. So I was thinking orthopedic surgeon, right? So keep that in the back of your head, skeletons, right? Later, I saw a museum exhibit that was about forensic science. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. So maybe I'll be a forensic pathologist. So if we fast forward to my junior year of college, I was an undergrad at the University of Wisconsin, and I was a pretty miserable biochem major. And I took an intro to archaeology class for fun. And that was the only class I liked that semester. So rather abruptly between the first and second semester, I changed to anthropology as a major, and I decided I was to be a forensic anthropologist. Apologist. So this was, you know, fairly late in my uh, undergrad. I still wanted to graduate in four years, so I basically just rushed through the requirement. And I didn't really know how the whole grad school thing worked. <laughs> so uh, my uncle is a professor, but nobody else in my family really was in the academia side of things. So I took a year off and I worked in an office and applied for, I think, three programs that year. Of course, I didn't get into any of because, again, I didn't know how it worked. And so over the course of the next year, I took a one-year certificate at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee Death Investigation and applied for more programs. And I got into Chico State, which is in California, and has a terminal master's in forensic anthropology. And I liked that experience, but by the end of it, I started to realize I was not going to stick with forensic anthropology. I, I was wanting to go back to the health and population and the broader things that I was interested in. So I looked for a program that really emphasized that, went to the University of Missouri, where I worked with Lisa Soundsville, who is the co-author on the paper we'll talk about. And that's really where I got into my kind of current area of looking at epidemics from this kind of biocultural focus. And after graduating, I did a couple of positions like visiting uh, and then did a Marie Curie fellowship here in Oslo, where I have stayed since then. And I am now the leader of the Center for Research on Pandemics and Society. I feel like your undergrad experience is very similar to my own in that pre-med track, biology, all of that stuff. And I took an anthropology course, maybe not necessarily for fun, but to fulfill a requirement. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, oh, I like this. And so just kept going and just kept going. So I definitely, I can relate to that very, very well. Yeah. And also, what kind of professor is your uncle? Okay, so first going back to your original, or first topic. Yes, I agree. And this is why I always say, take those breadth classes and elective classes that are required for your full degree, because it really opens you to new things. And my uncle is a professor of, oh gosh, I'm going to fit this wrong, it's going to be anatomy. I think it's biology, maybe anatomy, at um, Waynesburg University in Pennsylvania. If he's listening, maybe he can uh, send us a comment and let us know. <laughs> The reason when Lisa Satinspiel's name popped up, it just triggered memories of my first or second year here at Alabama, which would have been 2009, teaching students about disease transmission. And we were reading her work on, first on, I believe she has some work on Kuru. And then we were talking about swine flu. And I may be wrong on that, but I remember it's what gave me the entree and understanding the circulating epidemics at the time, West Nile, swine flu, later, you know, Zika. I mean, we've talked a little bit about this before. You're interested in historical perspective on these things. And I just wonder at what point you entered into this area of interest and research and what that's sort of been like. And then now, right, where your work is probably maybe the most relevant of anyone's we've ever talked to. 
besides <laughs> Shannon so Bennett, who's also a microbiologist studying viruses, right? So Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head any work that Lisa's done specifically on Kuru, but she might have been writing kind of like a larger review article that talked on that. Yeah, so when I went to Missouri from Chico and I was kind of switching, I had been accepted to the program as a potential advisee of two different professors there, Lisa was one of them. And really over kind of that summer, that was when I'm like, okay, I'm definitely not doing forensic anthropology anymore. That's pretty cool. You know, who doesn't like talking about infectious disease? <laughs> so that's basically in that time period. And then, um, you know, really started to work on that more. So let's go back <laughs> two years, maybe two years and three months, let's say that, where... COVID had not yet quite come to the United States. Was COVID on your radar before it hit the United States? So question one. And then question two, given your historical perspective on epidemics and pandemics, what was your thinking at the time? And then we'll bring it to present day of where your thinking is now. But take us back two years, two years and three months to just kind of like, did you know this is how it was going to play out? Did you predict it? It's a little yeah. insight. <laughs> Short answer, no, I did not predict it. I think, you know, there's these things in, in every article I've ever written. It's like, we know that there's going to be a pandemic at some point. We can't say when for sure, but we know it's coming. Right? <laughs> and yet still, it took everybody by surprise, or at least me. Right? So I had seen news articles about it, you know, when it was first starting to be reported. But perhaps like my strongest memory is really early March of 20. I guess. I was supposed to give a brown bag lunch talk to a group at the ECDC, the European CDC, and they canceled because obviously they were starting to have things more important <laughs> than my little lunch talk. But I still had my flight in my hotel, and so I a little naively decided to just go and spend a weekend in Stockholm because why Right. And uh, when they found out that I was there, they invited me to meet for lunch and sit in their kind of internal update meeting about COVID. And that was when I first saw like the growing number of cases in different countries presented side by side. I was just like, oh, no, because <laughs> right? I think when I first heard about it, I was thinking 2009, the first size and kind of media attention, but is it really going to be big? Right. And so shortly after that, I was back in Oslo. I met a friend for coffee and we're like, oh, I wonder when we're going to start having national regulations here. And literally that same afternoon, we got the email saying, stay home. <laughs> so that was, that was my experience, kind of those first days. You know, and I think that just goes to show that even people who are like supposedly experts, either we don't know what to expect or we can be in denial. So that's probably where I am now. It's just that I don't make any sort of predictions without having lots of caveats. <laughs> you know, and particularly being living in a different country at the time, it was very interesting and concerning for me to make comparisons for what was happening here versus what was happening in my parents' state, for example, and like going, why aren't we worried about this yet? <laughs> you know, so it was kind of an interesting experience to be kind of an insider in and out time. So you have a brand new paper in Lisa Satinspiel, as we pointed out. She's written extensively on epidemics and disease transmission historically, right? So your paper that you guys just published in HHB, we didn't get much schooling because we were fishing all the time in quotes, potential impacts of irregular school attendance on the spread of epidemics. So one, I wondered if you could tell us about the people of Newfoundland. Is it Newfoundland or Newfoundland, Jessica? Newfoundland. Uh, okay. Uh, why choose this community to look at and what can we learn about historical perspectives on epidemics? 
The simple answer for why Newfoundland is because Lisa was already working there when I joined her research group. I was, as I mentioned, fairly new to the topic, so I didn't really have any strong feelings about regional focus and like which disease I wanted to look at. And I still don't. I think a lot of the questions that I ask can be applied to and have been applied to lots of different areas and, and diseases. But now I can say that Newfoundland is really awesome. And if you get a chance to go there, you should go there. And one of the reasons that we have always, like our research group, other grad students and you said I have really liked looking at communities like this is because a lot of the research that's done, particularly these kinds of epidemic models, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, have really focused on high income areas, cosmopolitan areas. And you can't just downscale your findings from that to smaller areas, right? So places like this, historically and today, the more rural areas, the isolated areas, they're likely to have really bad outcomes during pandemics, partly because of a lack of resources, lack of previous exposure, and so on. So it's important to look at the kind of the unique features of those areas and not just say, well, this is what happens in big cities. So probably the same thing would happen in small areas, right? So that's a big reason we focus on these kind of smaller communities. And uh, the 1918 pandemic is just interesting. It's often used as like a good, well, bad, really a worst case scenario example. Yeah. I always like the, you know, pandemics, epidemics, interesting. Were you one like me who was obsessed with the movie Outbreak when it came out? <laughs> I feel like the government has a file on me for how many, like, between infectious <laughs> disease and how many books I bought off of Amazon or whatever, you know, like, oh my God, what is this woman planning on doing? <laughs> I often wonder, like, what files must exist on me, given my reading list. So you're in good company here. So, I mean, th this paper is really, it's a modeling paper, uh, looking at behaviors and looking at how disease may or may not spread. So tell us about the specific questions you were asking, and then how and where you got the data in order to kind of build these models. Uh, this is an open access thing, or did you have to go through historical records yourself? So yeah, it's a, a modeling paper. So we use agent-based modeling, and I'll try to explain that simply. We're using a phrase that a mine came up with many years ago, which is SimCity science. So if you think of little people living in your computer, basically, the agent-based models have agents, they have an environment, and they have rules. In this case, we just give them a to see what happens. And of course, it's, it's more scientific and systematic, and the graphics are really bad, right? But the idea is to try and things that emerge, so emergent outcomes, emergent properties from the interactions, behaviors, and at individual level entities, and in this case, people. And the emergent outcome, then, is the epidemic. This model was originally built during my dissertation many, many years ago with the intention to consider how this like specific fishing community or type of fishing community, I should say, the ecological and economic circumstances lead to kind of gender and age-related behaviors, which then could lead to differences in how diseases spread based on those. And so I looked at questions like the roles of schools and the roles of visiting and how different gender and age might influence transmission. And so for this one, which I guess we'll talk about in a second, was to look at schools. And the data that we used to build the model was historical archival things, mostly. So lots of ethnographic work has been done in Newfoundland, particularly prior to it becoming part of Canada. So came part of Canada in 1949. And then kind of work before that was thinking about kind of the kin-based organization of fishing and what life was like in these small communities. So that kind of ethnographic work and historical work, correspondence with the colonial secretary at the time, 
about the epidemic or the pandemic going through. Newspaper reports about the numbers of deaths, telegrams, or telegraphs, I always forget which is the right term. <laughs> and then also my study community in particular has a really active historical society that has a Facebook page, lots of genealogical work, and a woman who runs a little newsletter published, I think, quarterly. And so there's interviews with elderly people in the community remembering their childhood and so on. And I used all this to think about behaviors, social spaces, activities, and so on to kind of get realistic or plausible ways that people might behave in these types of communities that we then can simplify to put into the model. And then also disease parameters based on the epidemic reports. And so you found some possible links or associations with school attendance, and these point to some possible mitigation recommendations that we can employ. What did you find? Yeah, so the particular questions that were asked kind of implied by the title of the paper as well is thinking about, as I mentioned, a lot of these types of models and research think about schools today, high-income areas, where the expectation anyway is that students from 5 to 18 go to school every day and that's their job, right? We know that's not true today. We especially know that wasn't true historically. And in particular, in these kinds of communities, the students or the school-aged children might have left school for work reasons, getting married, going to a different type of community for whatever purpose, right? And so the idea was this could have happened on a seasonal basis. So during the busy fishing seasons, getting the fish was more important than going to school. Or as they got older, they might have just dropped out essentially. And so if we're basing our ideas about how disease is spread in communities and the kinds of school-based strategies we might use during epidemics, if we're basing on these ideas that all kids go to school, we might be overestimating the impact of school. And so in the model, we had three different scenarios then. One where the default was all the students going to school. One where they had a chance every day, or the older kids had a chance to go to the fishing boats instead of to school. And then one where a portion of the older students were reassigned at the very start, and they always went fishing, as if they had dropped out, essentially. And so we ran these different simulations. You have to run a bunch and kind of get an average and then compare the outcomes. And so perhaps unsurprisingly, right, broadly speaking, the epidemics get smaller and sooner and peak earlier when f more students do not attend school. And so this was more noticeable with size than with timing and more noticeable with the reassignment rather than the daily chance. And we also found that it was not just the students who were reassigned that kind of escaped the infection. Other students as well as other people in the community probably also had a little extra benefit from that. So again, it's suggesting that schools as these little petri dishes might not actually be as important in, in these types of communities. Yeah, no, it's just hearing that like schools are petri dishes. Like what? Yeah. Clearly that's new information to me as hand, foot and mouth disease like ran through Notre Dame undergrads last semester. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, so, I also love this idea of imagining a sim simulation, like a sim yes. game simulation for this. That is amusing to me. I'm imagining little pixelated people going to school and then walking away coughing. This is this yes. is how it's happening in my head. So going to try to bring it back to full circle to our second question and, and you know the modern day pandemic so what did we learn from your work that can be applied to today and 
if you were a person in charge of policy, knowing that you have to balance lots of things, like the socialization and education of children on top of a pandemic, so on and so forth, what would you do? (laughs) (laughs) No pressure. Yeah. No, I think, you know, and, you know, I'm not a parent, I'm not a teacher, I'm not on a school board, so many people would probably, I haven't even taught university classes during the pandemic, so people like, you have, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're, you're looking at this little computer simulation and no, right? But I think broadly speaking, the first thing again is we should be considering variation right? and recognizing that this kind of one size fits all doesn't necessarily work. And one of the things I thought at the very beginning that kind of made me go, hmm, was like basically once somewhere decided they were going to shut schools, everywhere shut schools, right? And yes, we have found, and it does tend to be that you want to like nip it in the bud, right? You want to stop it before it gets there, but that doesn't mean every single school needs to shut down at the exact same time. You want to make sure that you're tailoring for your area and for other concerns that might be important. Another thing to think about is that, again, looking at other places around the world, what are the larger kind of pandemic related implications that come with school attendance or why children might not be attending school? I think one of the things we mentioned in the paper was thinking about like economic stimuli. Thinking about some of these children actually do play important economic roles and productive roles in their families. And so if we're thinking about what are the economic concerns and the socioeconomic concerns, then schooling also ties into that. And you should think about those when you're making strategies from the government. And so the kind of the short and long-term benefits and challenges are going to vary. And they might vary specifically for, you know, really vulnerable types of and hate the term vulnerable, but sometimes there's no better word, vulnerable types of communities or schools. So lower income areas, schools for children with disabilities, for example. And again, these tend to be overlooked in these types of conversations that focus on more typical schools. And I think another thing that, you know, again, we talk about this in the paper a little bit, is that the different strategies that we looked at roughly correspond with different strategies today. If you're thinking about partial or, or alternating days of attendance, if you're thinking about some students do virtual and some students go in. And so what it does show is that these results do have different findings for different strategies, some in size, some in timing. It helps you test different hypotheses. And particularly with things like like with SimCity, if you look at a lot of the models that public health uses for national level projections, these are these math-based models that are really scary to look at. (laughs) Lots of equations. You're like, I don't know what that's saying. But if you're working with communities, if you're trying to communicate with people, if you're trying to come up with strategies that work and people can, you know, understand what you're doing in these models and do things like, look, these kids are going to school. These kids are not. Here's what happens when we compare these. And the exact numbers aren't necessarily going to be predictable, but the qualitative patterns might be predictable. And if it's easier to communicate that way, then I think you can possibly get more buy-in too. I want to dig really quickly down into this idea of SimCity science. It's a great metaphor, but this is a real thing that suggests to me with the importance of the pandemic in the lives of these kids, right? We've now got a, essentially a generation of kids who Some of them, their whole college experience has been in a pandemic or the rest of their high school or their whole high school. I mean, this is this is transformational. And so these kids are going to be much more interested in modeling something like this because they live through it. And I wonder what the math does look like for you. Like I'm looking through and I see some 
things like reassign. I see some terms I'm not familiar with and, and then others I am familiar with. So I'm, I'm actually wondering like, what's the software? Like, how are you doing this? What did you have to learn to be able to do this? Yeah, that's a good question. And this is something that has come up before, you know, and I was not intentionally, but sort of mocking these math equations. And I don't mean to, because those do have important value, right? They really do work in certain situations. And I always really careful to make sure that people know that there's a, like a toolbox, a toolkit, and you have different tools that answer different questions, right? And so the agent-based models I find are most useful if you're trying to kind of explore counterfactual things, thinking about behavior, thinking about spatial factors, thinking about individual variation and so on. And those are going to be, particularly if you think about all the different data I talked about that goes into this, right? it's going to be a longer to build. It's going to be perhaps harder to analyze, right? And so it might not be your first tool if you're trying to like rapidly respond to something. And so one of the things that I think is going to be important for people who are interested in this is to explore the different ways that people do this and see which ones make sense for the things that they're interested in and how they might answer different questions. Don't be afraid to go into other things, right? And I think also then in terms of the program that we use is NetLogo, which is uh, open access and it's really quite popular for agent-based modeling, particularly among people who are not computer programmers, <laughs> which I am not, right? And I don't want to be, like, I don't want to spend years writing a really fancy piece of code and never actually asking and, and investigating the questions I'm interested in. But you also then run into a question of if it's, if it's too easy to code, then everybody thinks they can do it and they forget to think about the theory behind it too, right? So there's, again, a balance there. But yeah, it's a matter of looking at the theory, looking at the questions, looking at the tools, and then I do think today <laughs> they do learn more of this like technology and computing stuff, hopefully, than I did when I was growing up. So it was maybe <laughs> they also, I know, have trouble sometimes just like attaching things to emails. So it depends on what you're talking about. Right. So, yeah, you know, hopefully they'll have a little bit of background. <laughs> You know, I, I hope that more people get into this, particularly in anthropology, because I don't think there has been a huge focus on this kind of thing in, in anthropology in the past. And it'll be good to have more people doing it and definitely come and talk to me and we'll get you started. So, yeah. I think that was a really good explanation as well as a disclaimer that you do not need to be a computer programmer in order to use these tools. And I think that's a really important thing to put out so people aren't scared right off the bat and avoid using this kind of thing. So yeah. thank you for that really great explanation. So what's next for you? Are you gonna continue down this modeling path or what's the next big project on your plate? Yeah, so I actually just finished a project that looked at disability as a risk factor during pandemics, which of course has been an issue this pandemic as well. So I'm working on getting a couple more of those papers to go through the publication pipeline. A couple co-authors and I have a paper on bioanthropology and pandemics currently under second round of review for the yearbook of biological anthropology. So if all goes well there, hopefully you'll see it soon. We did a survey on COVID vaccination in Oslo over the summer. So we have some analyses there to do. And we've started on a very early stages of a systematic review for the long-term mental health effects of pandemics. So lots of little different things going on. And you can assure us that there are no new pandemics or epidemics on the horizon that you will be modeling, no. right? No, <laughs> I oh, sorry. You that. sorry thought, to I say. Would, thought I would try. 
So uh, when you're not having the joy of joys, and I'm just being facetious, it does sound like fun. The reason I asked you about modeling is because I'm like, oh, maybe I could do this. And open source got me excited. So all jesting aside, we completely are fascinated by this. But we figure you probably can't do this all the time. So what do you do for fun? So I'm going to answer this question by telling a little story first. This is from when my mother was doing a, a course for work. And during the icebreaker, she listened to all of her colleagues talk about all their supposed hobbies that made them sound really adventuresome and athletic and exciting and cool and she was like yeah okay <laughs> and, uh, it's like i'm just gonna get up and be honest so this is my honest answer <laughs> i love travel and reading and going to museums and enjoying nature and all sorts of things but most of my free time i probably spend watching tv and movies <laughs> So, especially with COVID, hey, that's what I do. And I don't think any of people really go kayaking all that often either. So, I think you're in really good company with Chris and I here because we love TV, movies, and books. We often give each other book recommendations. So, <laughs> no shame in this at all. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, you know, there's always like people want to say, okay, I got to say something that makes me sound cool and not like a nerd. And I'm like, nope, I'm a nerd. I'm going to embrace it. So, yeah. <laughs> anyway jessica thank you so much for taking the time today to be on the show we really really appreciate it and obviously one of the most relevant interviews we could ever possibly be doing sadly still <laughs> i always say i'd rather study pandemics than live through one but here we are so still living in it we can look forward to having you back again once you have those other papers out too and hopefully so. <laughs> when we have you back we will not still be in a pandemic. Fingers crossed. <laughs> we'll be modeling the COVID pandemic to be able to prepare for the next not yes. pandemic. <laughs>